Our guest today has a reputation that truly precedes him. Monaco-based Australian businessman David Lanigas is not your average stock market figure. He's had a hugely varied career, marches to the beat of his own drum, and is known for his unapologetic boldness. Some call him a promoter, others see him as a visionary. But one thing's for certain, some people love David Lenigas and some people absolutely loathe him. With a career filled with twists and turns, David Lenigas is not one to shy away from risks. So sit back, relax, and prepare to see the unconventional path that David Lenigas has carved for himself. Get money. Get money. One for the money. Three fifty dollars twist. Zorik, 23. Two for the show. Two and eight sold. Three to get ready and board Go! Welcome to Mavericks. Um, Dave, I was I was thinking yesterday about how to start this interview. You've obviously had a, a massively colourful career. I want to rewind back to young Dave Lennygas, childhood, Oz. Tell me a little bit about that. Like most of us, all we can remember is when we're back to about five. Um, at five, I was living in a tiny little town called Perenna in the middle of South Australia in the desert. Uh, population was about six people. I was one of them. And my father was uh, the general store greater driver, um, rabbit shooter, used to shoot rabbits for R.M. Williams to make their hats before they ran out of rabbits in Australia. Um, and Peruna had the local district primary school for the whole area. Uh, a lot of people sort of transitioned through that little town. I think it's still got five or six people living in it. And, uh, and then I moved to sort of Adelaide and then moved in grade four, it was, to Queensland. I did most of my education before I started university and went to Kowoolie. Were you a pretty normal kid, normal interests, were you like Aussie kind of rugby? Uh, we, we, we played sport and uh, played outside. Um, the key thing was, you know, getting into trouble, coming home at 10 o'clock at night, mother not knowing where you were. You know, we'd be down at the river fishing um, every now and again, you know, when we got over 15, someone would be brave enough to go in the pub and buy a can of six, you know, six cans of 4X and and we try and ride our bikes home at sort of nine o'clock at night, sort of as 14-year-olds being half cut. We're just normal kids. But pe parents weren't city folk at all. They weren't in the markets. They weren't no. mining mining folk. No, Dad was a you know, Dad was a musician. He was a Lithuanian uh, immigrant um, after the Second World War to Australia. Um, married uh, my mother in Adelaide and, and went bush. He was a general storekeeper and, and musician. Had a bad car accident, sort of which sort of ruined his trombone playing career. But, you know, he played instruments right through and he was a, his, his favorite thing was art. He was a very good artist, sold paintings, you know, <coughs> um, to people all over the world. That was sort of his hobby. You know, we were just normal kids struggling our way through life and school. Yeah. Yeah. 18 years old, leave school and start at, at mining university or mining college? No, I, I went to um, University of Queensland and there we did common first year. So it was engineering, you know, electrical, civil. I thought, I'm going to fail all of this. So I went and saw the head of the um, University of Queensland and said, look, I think I want to go and try this mining scenario. And he said, well, I'll see if I can get you a job just to see. And uh, he got me a job in Tennant Creek, which is right in the middle of, of the Northern Territory in Australia. And uh, went home and said to my mum, I'm going bush. I'm going to go get a job in the mines. It, I was gone the next day. Was that a pr pretty common path at the time or not? No. I mean, the reason I did mining engineering is I sort of looked at all of my mates. You had 
doctors were the, like the pinnacle. You know, if you've got 990 tertiary entrance score, you wanted to be a doctor because doctors got paid a bucket load of money. And then it was dentists, lawyers, and then there was engineering and sort of common, you know, whether you went civil, mechanic or whatever. And I sort of worked out, I go, doctors, seven years, commerce law, seven years, mining engineering, three, and you end up with huge pay, drink lots of beer, go out with lots of girls and have lots of fun, and it's a three-year degree. I'm going to become a mining engineer. And that's why I did mining engineering. And unfortunately, it took me 10 years to get my degree because I went through University of Queensland. And then when I was 18, I saw an ad in the paper in the middle of the Northern Territory and said, you know, come and join the mines department in Western Australia. We'll pay your way through the Kalgoorlie School of Mines. So I said, well, that sounds like a good job for me. And um, I applied. And six months later, I got a phone call from the senior inspector in Kalgoorlie Mr. Loxton, who said, that job you applied for, it's yours, but you've got to be here by Sunday. And I think it was Tuesday he rang me. <laughs> so I said, I'm in. So I packed up my mining boots and got in my little Alfa Romeo GTV 1750 and drove around Australia and got into Kalgoorlie literally um, five o'clock on the Sunday night to start work Monday morning. And that was at the ripe old age of 18. But it wasn't like that was the, you, you had kind of full thought this career no, path. And no, no, it was all by accident. And I, and, I, and I look back and I think, okay, so what does university actually teach you? How much am I actually doing now that I was actually taught? And I think it's the same for young kids everywhere. I mean, I see this in the paper today, uh, the Prime Minister's commenting about, you know, shutting down bogus, you know, fluffy degrees. I think what university teaches you and, and tertiary education is the concept of the fact that you've got to do it yourself. You've got to get up and go and do your studies and pass. And at the end of the day, there's a career path for you. Some jobs, there is a, there's a definitive career path. But I think what university teaches young kids today is the concept of discipline. They did it. Now it's got more complications on the fact you've got, you know, you're being loaded up with debt. I mean, when I, when I was um, doing my engineering, the concept of debt for your degree came in on the last year, my 10 years of studying. So um, it didn't sort of hurt me much. It's, it's interesting because we, we've had a number of guests on. And we, actually, funnily enough, totally unplanned, we've all spoken about university. And the, the reaction has been fairly mixed. Like We've had quite a few people um, that have been like, actively anti-university and wouldn't advise their kids to go. It sounds to me you're a little bit more pro and a little bit more uh, seeing the merits of actually going. There are many jobs you can't get without a university degree. Um, and I think if... You, you know, from a parent looking at a kid scenario, you want to give your kid the best start in life. If a kid wants to get a, I'm going to just go and become an apprentice or a bricklayer or a hairdresser or whatever, then that's their call. But you've at least got to give them the opportunity. I mean, I asked my daughter, who's 14, uh, literally a few days ago, I said, you know, do you want to go to university or do you want to take you know, the apprenticeship route? She said, no, she says, I want to go to university because I think I'll have a chance of getting better job, whether it's in England or elsewhere, I think I'll get a better job with a university degree. I said, do you know what you're going to do yet? She says, I wouldn't have a clue. She says, I'm 14, which is a good answer. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. So, so um, you arrive on this late Sunday evening. Yeah. The, the, the next however many years are at Kalgoorlie School of Mines. Well, no, Kalgoorlie was mint because it was 
the miners, because because that was the transit, that was the transition phase when when everything went from old underground shafts to big open pits, and Alan Bond and his Alan Bond fighting with the you know, tiny Rollins at Lonroe, and and I was an underground miner, and a mines inspector, and a student all over that sort of ten year period, and in some of that time, I was all three. Because there was enough flexibility in, in, in what what I was allowed to do. So I graduated, you know, eight years after being in Kalgoorlie. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, I'd only been in Kalgoorlie for about um, a month. And uh, one of the senior inspectors was the, um, the stewards of the race committee for the Kalgoorlie Race Route, one of the biggest racing <laughs> events sort of outside of the regional cities in Australia. And he goes, Lagos, he says, do you know anything about racing? I go, nah. I had like $200 to my name. He goes, give me a form guide. I didn't have one. He said, go buy one. It cost a dollar. So I open up the first page. He goes, right. There's like eight races. And I walked out of there that day. And I'd also been to the two-up as well that night. Never been to the two-up either. I won 10 grand at the two-up, but I won 45000 Forty-five. I was eighteen. I won forty-five thousand dollars on the races and two up, and I had two hundred dollars to my name. And I went and bought a house. I went and bought a car, and I went and bought furniture. And I very rarely bet on the races yeah. ever since. Yeah, yeah. And I just go, that's a good start to life. Unbelievable. You know. So, so Kalgoorlie for 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 ten years, and then and then you moved to Fiji, did you? Yeah. Um, because I was studying and working. So when I graduated I ended up having enough work time to get a first class my manager's ticket and uh, and the head of emperor I called uh, Jeffrey Reed in Fiji called up the Sir Aldwin uh, Jones who was the, the head of the Kalgoorlie School of Mines and said who have you got that, that could come across to Fiji I want your top man apparently I was the top man so I got offered a job to go to Fiji and unfortunately it was the time of the coup so all the fun things in Fiji had shut down. You weren't allowed to go around. The weekends, the TV was shut down, the radio was shut down. And, um, but I decided to go to Fiji. Um, my wife, uh, at the time, she went to the Kogolish Kilomot, got my degree on my behalf because I was stuck in Fiji. And, uh, and I helped the team there for about four or five years. And yeah, Emperor was a big, big company. We were market captain, top fifty companies in the Australian. So well, what, what were you doing? Were you were you uh, kind of just a, a standard engineer, or like I went in as a senior mining engineer and very quickly became effectively the the, the chief for Emperor for mining operations around the world, and the chairman of the joint operating committee with Western Mining, which is now owned by BHP. Uh, Western Mining at the time was a really big swing and dick um, mining company in Australia. And Sarabi Pavo and uh, and uh, and Hugh Morgan really didn't like the fact that they were reporting to effectively a 28, 29 year old uh, on the joint venture. But you know, it was a big operation. We made lots of money, um, and we had operations and operational interests all over the world. That's really where I started my whole corporate career. Yeah, you know, we had um, operations in South America. We had operations in Australia and in, in Asia, and I was on the board of many of those things. You were you personally making good money at the time, or not? Not really. I I don't think I made any proper money until I um, sort of finished that and sort of um, went more corporate in my own sense, sort of in the late nineties. I, I was more of a, a paid employee, and 
Jeffrey Reed, who sadly passed away, um, he sort of taught me corporate life, really. And for that, I'm thankful. So you, you came back from Fiji. I went back to four, Australia. Four years. Yeah, uh, nearly five years. And then I sort of went back on the tools, um, sort of with some of the big uh, construction or well, mining contracting companies. Um, I was a stockbroker analyst for a while on gold, um, which was a bit different. And, uh, and then I don't know how it happened, but I got asked to start a company called Ghana Gold Mines. And uh, it was a very interesting board. It was uh, Neville Rand, who was the ex-premier of uh, New South Wales, probably one of the most powerfully politically incorrect, well, important people in Australia, because you know New South Wales was the biggest state. He was a Labor Party um, premier, uh, and Malcolm Turnbull, and uh, Alan Doyle, and, and Christian Turner, and they wanted to float this thing called Ghana Gold Mines. So I moved to Sydney and we did that. We got it listed and um, that was quite an achievement. We got that project going from concept to listing in four months and gold production, something like seven weeks thereafter. It was amazing. Where we were listed in Oz. Listed in Oz, yeah. Went to a market cap of about a hundred million. Um, yeah. Was that, and that was, that was the first kind of venture into public market life. And, and from that stage, you thought I've got a future in this, or, or, or it wasn't. It was you, you don't look for a future in anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm one of these people that I think my role in life is. I think you can sort of determine what your role in life actually is. I'm a Mister Fix It. I'm not one of these people that can happily walk into something that's going well and say I'm happy just keeping the, the wheels turning here and making a few little tweaks. I like to try and fix things. So Asia Energy, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of those other things. But Ghana Gold was, we've got an operation in Ghana. I liked Africa at the time. I'd been there a few times. Here's an operation I could potentially put into production and make some money and end up with some stock, all that sort of stuff. And it was, to me, a two-year job. And it was about two years and my job was done. We got the place into production, had a good time traveling to Europe. I became Swiss Air's most traveled customer in the world. Because it was Sydney to Zurich to Lagos to Accra, every month returned for two years. So, what 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 happens to that business? Well, like a lot of these mines, they just change hands after a while, and and then it ended up being. Last I heard, it was um, owned by a Hong Kong company that sort of the management came into ill repute, and um, and over that was one of their operations. And speaking to someone who's in Ghana. They're actually, the plant's still there. There's about 400 illegal miners all working underground at the Conongo gold mine. It was, a rich, it was as rich as hell. I mean, historically, it was nearly an ounce to the ton. Um, but yeah, it's still there. So th this, this kind of takes you towards that like early 2000 stage, 2002, 2003, in which you, you moved to the UK first time. Didn't move here. Okay. Um, what happened was I... I didn't know what I really wanted to do in sort of the early 2000s. And a guy called Johnny Byrne, who comes to London quite a lot, uh, he had a whole heap of companies listed in Australia and one listed over here, all Cambrian. And the market in Australia was pretty shagged. And he goes, Dave, he says, come to my Christmas lunch with the staff. This is in Melbourne. 
because unless I can work out how to fix these five companies, which are all pretty much broke, this is the termination Christmas lunch for the team. And I went to lunch. It was all pretty miserable. John had had these people working with him for a long time. There was Asia Energy, Deep Green, I mean, Cambria Mining. There was about six companies under his umbrella. I said, John, I think I can help you. But I said, I won't work for you. I'll work with you. So John said, well, this is Dave. Yeah, he's moved from Sydney down to Melbourne. Uh, and Dave's going to help us out. And within three months, I had all of the companies funded through my broker contacts. And some of them became very big, successful companies. And that's what really brought me to London. I don't know how many people know this, but I I read that in 2004, you had, or your office had the number one, the number fifth, and the number seventh. So you you kind of set the stock market alight when you came to London. Like, what what was that like? Well, Asia Energy was huge. I came here really to help John and the team uh, out of St. James's Street to rebuild Cambrian Mining. And Cambrian Mining had... Uh, Asia Energy, it had um, Deep Green, it was mucking around with Western Canadian coal in Canada. And we listed Asia Energy, and Cambria was a funny, it was listed on OFEX. OFEX was transitioning to AIM at the time. And when we did the, I think it was 17 million pound raise for, for Asia Energy, it was like the largest or the second largest raising on AIM's history at the time because AIM was new because it was OFEX coming to AIM. And it was done by WH Island. <coughs> Philip Richards was a big supporter, Rab. And uh, and the stock, and it was a huge project. It, the stock ended up 2004, 2005, because we listed 2003, um, going to a market cap of nearly a billion pounds. And when, when you came in, what were we talking? I know, it was nothing. We listed it. Um, with a 17 million pound, from memory, uh, capital raise. It sort of got up to 70p. And I remember the headline that two of the world's biggest independent coal valuation companies had valued the Pulbari coal project between 2 point something billion pounds or US dollars and 2 point something else billion. And it just took off. And we had really good support from JP Morgan Casanova's at the time. And I remember the, the buy report from them at the time was buy this stock by recommendation to 16 pounds. And we were currently, I think the, the highest we got was nine pound 15. So that was best performer number one. And then we also did that year, Altona and Braymore. And that was with my mate, Jeremy Edelman. And we've just listed the company here, Jeremy and I called Binance uh, PLC, which is a Bitcoin miner. And that was Altona and Braymore. Can't remember which one was number five and number seven. So yeah, no, we had a... Did you, did you feel at the time like you were walking on water or not? No, because no, I always remember someone say to me, he says, you never want to be at the top of the list because next year you're not. And uh, and Chris Eager, who was the chairman of Asia Energy, was so excited that we were um, stock number one. I went to the AIM Awards that year and I thought this is a bad omen. Yeah. And it was the next year that the, um, that the Bangladesh riflemen went and shot the protesters. And that, that really sort of signaled the end to what was a phenomenal project for Bangladesh. The project's still alive, uh, GCM Resources. But, I mean, we had it pretty much funded for $1.4 billion. We had the IFC, the World Bank, Barclays, the whole lot. It was a project that would change Bangladesh and infrastructure in Bangladesh, not just coal. It was fresh water. It was, you know, Bangladesh is, is 
probably still the world's worst poisoning of a population ever of the arsenic that is in the groundwater in Bangladesh goes into the entire population of Bangladesh. The water from Pulbari, 150 million tonnes a year of it, was designed to then go down into Dakar to supplement and dilute the arsenic that sits in the groundwater in Bangladesh. It was pristine water. And it was going to produce all the rock supplies so they can make proper concrete for buildings instead of smashing up bricks. And I mean, it was it was such a great project. It was, it was just, just a, such a pity that the that the British NGOs who funded the um, the protesters, uh, Action Aid being one of them, and I see they're still around today, taking money from uh, the British government to cause trouble elsewhere. Um, like, we'll get, we'll get on to this laugh. later. You we'll get, laugh. We'll get on but, to this later. We'll get on but to it was it was really tragic, and uh, and five stroke seven people died because of that, and a project which was well funded and supported by both the government and the opposition in country uh, stopped. Yeah, it collapsed overnight? Or it- uh, finished. Yeah, I was on holidays with my uh, wife in Sardinia when the phone call came in from, uh, from Steve Bywater and said, I've got some bad news. Um, there's been a protest on site and people have been killed and the government killed them. And what happened was, yeah, they called the riflemen from the boundary of uh, Pakistan which was only 10 kilometres away, not of India, which is only 10 kilometres away. They came because there was a protest. They felt like they're being threatened. These 5,000 protesters basically marched through a riverbed which had no water in it. The you know, 50 or 60 riflemen thought that they were their life was in danger, so they shot and they killed people. And that's what brought pretty much one of the great projects of Bangladesh to a halt. And now there's lots of talk about the Chinese want to take control of it and bring it all back. Bless the Chinese. And then, so, the, so, so, Asia Energy uh, had had this kind of massively abrupt end. Where did where did Lonro fit in? Because Lonro. Right, so, so yeah. So 2005, I got a phone call from Colin Ewing, Lord Colin Ewing, um, who was working for Blakeney Asset Management, and Colin and I were doing some work on Rivers Gold, uh, Rivers Diamond. Uh, that was doing some diamond and gold stuff in the middle of Brazil. Um, and Collar rings me up and says, oh, I work for Blakeney Asset Management, which was a big African investor, and they had like a couple of billion invested in Africa, and they were having huge fights with um, J.R. Hambro, another fund. They were all suing each other. He said, can you come into the office? We'd like to talk to you about Lonro. And I thought, hmm. Lonro, I thought Lonro was dead. I remember meeting Tiny Rollins in Ghana once. I mean, the guy's a national hero, but uh, he's dead. So I went and saw um, the Blakeney guys, and they said, look, would you be interested in rebuilding Lonro and we'll help with a recapitalize the company? J.O. Mill, you know, J.O. Hambro had just moved the pension funds, which is about 26 million quid, out. They were down to a couple of small assets, one hotel in Mozambique, Hotel Cardozo. And I said, well, I can only rebuild it if we if we raise some money and sort of try and rebuild Lonro into a Pan-African conglomerate. So it was JP Morgan, myself, Blatney Asset Management, a couple of my New York funds, uh, Offspray, uh, BlackRock, and we raised, I 
think it was about 25 million pounds or something to go and start the rebuild of Lonero. And I took control of Lonero on the 23rd of December 2005. I remember that date because it screwed up the concept of me going back to Oz for the Christmas holidays. And, and the day I took control, I got in the lift and Alan Bond, I got in the same tiny lift in St. James's Street. Yeah, 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 I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. Bear in mind, Bondy was my hero. I mean, I was Kalgoorlie. He was the super pit. He was Mr. Big, Bond International Gold. I mean, he changed mining in Australia. He was uh, America's Cup. I mean, nothing would go wrong. And then Bondi uh, ended up going to jail for stealing some paintings and whatever and huge fights with Tiny Roland. So me taking control of Lonro was sort of a bit like a screwdriver in the guts to Alan Bond. Uh, and he was two floors below me on St. James Street. And for then Bondi ever, for, for, for years, Bondi tried to sell me half a dozen deals a week, which I never did. Some of them were pretty good. It just, he was just too hard to deal with and probably a bit too toxic as well from a regulatory perspective. Plan. So um, what was the question? No, no, but then, and then, and then, so then, and then what, what was the state of Lonro when you took it over? I, I, it was I, finished. It had, one, one hotel. We had one hotel in Mozambique called the Hotel Cardozo, and I walked in and said to Jim, who was a company secretary, who was working out of home and a caravan because Lonro was pretty much being shut down. I said, Jim, what do Pestana want to buy this thing for? He says, well, there's an agreement that's not signed for $3 million, like dollars. And I go, well, would you sell? And he goes, no, we've just had an insurance valuation of 14 or 16 million. You know? And I go, we're not selling it. That was my only asset. And I go, hmm. So I said, you go tell Pastana to go jam it up there, yin yang. I'm not selling him a $16 million hotel for 3 million. Oh, we're going to sue you. I said, fine, sue us. So I said, Jim, what are we going to do to rebuild Lonero? I said, I think we're going to start a thing called Lonero Luxury Hotels. And we're going to rescue this hotel in Mozambique and we're going to make it a really good one. And that was really the only asset we started Lonro with. And that was, um, yeah, very early 2000s. What a few years, you've got 23,000 employees. Well, no, lots. I mean, the, th the thing is, how do you count an employee in Africa? You've got direct and you've got indirect. Of course, of course. And, and in Africa, you've got this multiplier effect, which is, you know, I think in the Western world, uh, every person you employ has either two or two and a half times multiplier factor that, that directly benefits from an employment. In Africa, it's anything, depends which country, from eight to ten. So you know, it, in five or six years of sort of running Lonro, we had, um, we had ports, we had hotels, we had um, uh, aviation because we started you know, uh, Fastjet. So we stuck off Stelios yeah, involved yeah. in that, which changed... Tanzania and a couple of other countries dramatically. I mean, I was really proud of that. So, um, you know, we had tens of thousands of employees. I don't know what the final number was. Uh, Jeff White, who was my CEO, used to sprout them off you know, quite rapidly around the world because, yeah, he presented at Davos and what we were doing in Africa. We, we were quite knowledgeable. Uh, and there are a lot of presidents and prime ministers in Africa that remembered Lonro, and we had good entrees into many of them. They would actually approach me and Jeff to say, could you come back into my country and sort of do some good work? Uh, I remember meeting the other opportunity to meeting Zuma before he even became head of the ANC. Um, when we built, rebuilt the Hotel Caravia in, um, in Lumbumbashi, which was basically just a concrete shell which was destroyed in the war, 
um, Kabila came up with all of his you know, supercars and and entourage from Kinshasa for the opening because they they used to move the seat of government every now and again to 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 Lumbumbashi, which is the heart of the copper region. And Kabila grabbed me by the shoulder and he said, "Right, let's go. You and me go for a walk." He says, "I remember." We left all the dignitaries around the swimming pool. He says, I remember one of my earliest recollections in life was Tiny Rollins flying me and the old man, Kabila, to London in Monroe private jet. And he goes, it's, I still remember that day. He says, thanks for coming and rebuilding this hotel. He said, could you do me one of these in Kinshasa as well? Now, Kinshasa is like 18 million people, right? And I go, you name one and we'll redo that one as well. And uh, and it was the Portland or the Portland, I can't remember. It was like 415-room hotel. And uh, and that work started and uh, and I left between the work starting and finishing. And a couple of years back from now, I went to the DRC about four or five years ago and stayed in that hotel. I'm going, I remember this. Yeah. I pulled out an old email and there were the old plans. So I went and saw the manager and said, you know, I started this refurb. It was a mid hotel. But yeah, we changed so many things in Africa for the better. Um, what, what, what eventually happened to Lomar? It got taken out by two Swiss billionaires, Swiss and a German. They partnered because they liked the concept of Africa and growth. And um, it was a full takeover. And Lomar, after being listed in London for 150 for years was no longer listed in London. But a lot of the a lot of the enterprises were sold off because it sort of didn't fit with what they wanted. And some stayed. I think they're still huge in fish. Uh, I think they sold off all the hotels to other groups quite early in the piece. They shut down or sold out their interest in the aviation side because they didn't want to be in airlines. So uh, yeah, but that was 2000. I left 2012 or 13. Ten years ago, it's, it's, it's interesting, Dave, because at, at this stage, it seems to me like you had quite a lot of kind of fairly big corporate success, and yet, you know, I, I don't think it, it's it's a surprise. To well, I hadn't made a lot of money by, by that stage, but but what what I was getting to was that you know I think it's fair to say you're quite a controversial guy, and everyone f- seems to focus on your failures. At this stage, it seems like things were going, you know, things have gone pretty well. Look, it's the tall poppy syndrome. Um, and when I was Lonroe, yeah, I, I employed a really special board. I had U.S. ambassadors, ex-U.S. ambassadors on the board. I had Sir Richard Needham on my board, who was the ex-minister for North Island. We had a big spat at the end because I ended up having to sack him and he ended up sort of trying to sue me and Lonroe. And you know, I remember the headlines of Times of the Telegraph, you know, lending us the new unacceptable face of capitalism, um, sort of mimicking... Uh, Tiny Rollins and 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 Heath, and when Tiny was the unacceptable face of capitalism, it's the tall poppy syndrome. I think. I mean, you mentioned earlier before we sort of started this interview. You, know, you read somewhere that you know the media got stuck into me for having 140 directorships, but what they failed to to say in that particular piece was 95 percent plus, probably 98 percent plus, were Lonro related. Because my view is if I'm going to take money from institutional and you know, and pension funds off you know, money to go and build Lonro, 
then the buck stops with me as executive chair. So therefore, I wanted to be executive chair of every subsidiary and sub-subsidiary of Lonro. And Lonro, having 23 countries with operations uh, and so many different operating and, and dormant subsidiaries, I was chairman of all of them. But it's a very easy tagline for the media to come out and go, oh, is, how can he focus on anything? He's got 147 directorships. What they didn't say was 144 of them were Lonro related. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you never really have the opportunity to get another journalist to say, well, maybe that journalist sort of put the angle wrong because the news is done. You know, the headline was Lenigas chairs 149 public companies or whatever it was. Yeah, and didn't have the platform. And you, uh, yeah, correct. And you never have the right of recourse. And all this, and I, and I amuse when you read the paper, and I've had a number of these scenarios with Lonner and some of the other things I've done. In, in the UK, where you know, you go and attack the newspaper, and if you win, you get a little byline in a little box on page two that says, oh, this newspaper apologises because it got this one wrong. But there's no headlines in that. Do you, do you think... you, you was there, Actually, they're, they're probably discussing with the previous guest that I don't think there are that many big characters in, in the city, really big, bolshy, you know, uh, kind of visionary people. Do you think, do you think there's an element of, of that in there or not? I don't know. I mean, I, I know a lot of the city. I know a lot of the fund managers, what well, I used to. It's all changed now. And in, in those days, AIM, the LSE, even OFEX or no, not, uh, Next or yeah. Plus Markets, yeah. I mean, it was a real growth market. And there were fund managers that all had little $50 million funds that would invest in startup and growth companies. It pretty much disappeared. What, what was London like 10 years ago when you... When you well, Probably 20 years ago now. Nearly 20 years ago. I mean, 20 years. Yeah, 2003, I sort of came here first trip for for Asia Energy and and Cambrian. OFEX was turning into AIM. AIM was a great growth market. Uh, It was better than TSXV from a liquidity perspective. I liked the market maker system at the time because it created volume. And volume, from what I understand now, is not about location, location, location. Anymore. It's about management, management. Do you have volume? If you've got volume, you can raise money. If you can raise money, you can go build companies. You could have the best deal in the world, but unless you can raise money, you're going to die. And the streets are littered with companies that die because the management couldn't raise money. So it's all about volume, volume, volume. And it's how you get that message out on the volume. And I think the way I got my messaging out some people just didn't like it. Yeah. I know the regulators didn't like it. I, re- I remember being quizzed by a certain regulatory team about you know, my use of social media. In fact, I th- I'm pretty sure that the new social media guidelines which have been put into place have been put into place because of me um, and the fact that I use social media. And I, I remember responding to the, um, to the regulatory body and said, you know, 97% of Fortune 500 companies in the US, their CEOs or presidents or chairmen actively use social media. Social media here in the UK, it was like 3%. And my job as the chief executive, the man who holds the flag, is to use whatever tools I have available to me, whether it's 
face-to-face uh, -face with an institution, whether it's face-to-face -face with shareholders at, at general meetings, whether it's the newspaper, whether it's the radio, or whether it's social media through the internet, that is my job. Platform, platform is a It is my job to educate the world what we do. And I absolutely do not apologise for that. That's my job. Do you, do you think? Do you think that there's a fine line between educating people what you do and and promotion or not? No. Look, I learned quite quickly. There's certain things you can and can't say, and the innuendo behind how you say stuff. So, the real issue is you just cannot even hint at anything that could be deemed to be insider information. So you can really only comment once the news is out. You can put a little bit of extra flair on the basis that I wrote a news release and there are certain touch points within that news release and you can put a bit more flavour behind some of those touch points, but you're not allowed to say anything new. Do you, do you like flirting in that grey area? Is that is that a character? No. Uh, sometimes I found it a bit humorous, um, but I think the older you get, the more conservative you get. Um, and I've still got mates today from Australia. Oh, you can't say that. Don't just shut up. Get off the social media stuff. I said, no, mate, that's my job. Well, yeah, good, bad or ugly, that's my job. Because, and, and I always remember when we did the Asia Energy. Um, no, no, it was Horse Hill. My PR guy was a guy called David Bick, who does Newcastle and Amanda Staveley. And he's a great guy, great, good friend of mine. And, and Bicky goes to me, he goes, Dave, he says, there's one thing I've learned in this city and he's a big football journo type dude. He goes, if it's in one newspaper, it's real. If it's in two newspapers, it must be real. And if it's on TV, my God, it is real. All right? So it's very difficult to get yourself in a newspaper. So how else do you get your story out? Yeah, yeah. Like democratizing kind of media. Yeah, and broker and the broking industry's changed. Yeah, in the old days, a guy, a, a broker would get two, two and a half percent on a buy and a sell ticket. Now it's so corporatized that a broker might get 0.1 percent on a buy and sell ticket. So, what's actually making the doors go round and round at a broking firm these days is corporate finance fees. There's no money for brokers making money from secondary trading. In the old days. Brokers would get good commissions, you know, in and out. Why don't you sell a bit of this, go buy a bit of that? But there's no fees anymore. They're getting on, you know, fixed fee dealer's fees of, um, you know, three, three pounds, seven pounds, um, 0.1%. There's no incentive. Brokers are just sitting here looking for corporate financings. So that's what keeps the doors around. And fees are going up. In the old days, it used to pretty much be 5% flat cash. Now you're paying anything from, depends which market you're on, anything from 5 to 10% plus broker warrants. And that's the broker. Then the nomad, if you're on AIM or whatever, wants his fees because the nomad is on a separate pay ticket to the broker within the firm. So then you've got to do two lots of fees and... Everyone's offering, try and do a financing at market or near market. That tells you how the market is. You know, from what I'm hearing and speaking to my mates who live here in England and doing financings, you're getting screwed to 25 to 30 to 40% discounts. I mean, I've got one very close mate of mine who has a firm here that also has operating, you know, 
licenses in in uh, in Hong Kong. And he says, Dave, I got more money than you could poke a stick at for, for, for placings, but my guys will only take 40% discounts and warrants. And you know, and I look back at, you know, so my little love children like you, Cobb, you know, when we went and drilled the Horse Hill Gatwick Gusher. And, um, you know, it's now got 27 billion shares on issue. WH Island have been their main financier for years, but it's deep discount stuff. And it doesn't take long to blow your capital structures up when you're doing deep discounts. So you say the doors are companies to blame or broker and advisors to blame? Look, public companies are public because they raise money, if not become private. Right? That's why people are listed on stock exchanges is to raise money. Raise money and raise corporate debt. So everybody's to blame. It's yeah, it's all one big it's just the system. It's a system. Yeah, and and neither part can operate without the other. But everyone blames the company. No one blames the broker. I've I've been in discussions even recently within the last three, four months where people go, Well, I want to do a financing at a ten percent discount to market. Look at the V no, no, we can only do it at twenty five. But you need the money because you know, someone like me who's been in the business long enough can say, okay, we do have money in the bank. Looking at the future, you've got interest rates rising. You've got mortgage rates rising. Everyone goes, ah, oh, the interest rates are topped out. Inflation's topped out. Bollocks. This market has another 2 to 3% inflation into the system in my mind. Um, I was reading somewhere the other day, yeah, for the last couple of decades, the average interest rate on houses has been typically 5 to 7%. The last two decades has been extraordinarily low at 1 to 2%. Look back at history. Everybody's been lucky. People have been growing their asset base on borrowed cheap money that's no longer there, and now people are going to hurt. I'm hurting. Okay? I wish I sold out of my... Um, yeah, LGC Capital and banked a hundred million, yeah, eighty to a hundred million dollars. We can talk about that. Let's talk about. Let's talk about that. So, so I, I've, re- I've read that your biggest regret is the whole Lenny Gas Cuba LGC Capital kind of saga. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Like, what, why, why do you regret that so much? Let's go back a bit. So, why, why did we do Lenny Gas Cuba? Right. So, there was an opportunity with some people I met said, "Why don't we invest in Cuba?" And I go, "Well, England is a place that's allowed to invest in Cuba." even though America's got sanctions. Some of my mates in Australia are investing in Cuba. They're investing in the oil and gas sector. And that company, Melbana, has had huge oil strikes, which is what I was mainly interested in at the time. And we had travel. I mean, we we brought some of the world's most famous people to Cuba uh, on specialized trips. It was mint. It was great. Um. And you could see that changing politics, but it was the only market that would list us was the lower end of the market here. So we raised some money. We had no one cared. No one could trade it. We had Pershing blocking people's accounts. I had all of my personal bank accounts blocked, whether it's here or in Monaco or BBR Canada. It was just impossible because America had such big influence over people who played with Cuba personally and corporately. And a lot of people who invested in Lenny Gas Cuba, and we changed it to LGC Capital, um, 
couldn't touch their stock for 12 to 18 months here. It was frozen. I mean, I think we listed at 3P. We got up to about five. We got down to about one and a half. Um, Trump lost government. No, Trump came in. Obama was very open to Cuba, and we had great support from the Home Office. We had great support from the um, from the U.S. government. We we're working with the Albright Stumbridge Group uh, in uh, in Washington, and then politics changed, and then we basically got a tap on the shoulder the next day and said, "Get out of Cuba, and you cannot show anybody you made one cent." We basically sold everything for a dollar, and I said to the board, "I said, what are we going to do?" I said, Weed. We're going to go cannabis. When, when was this? 20... Oh, I can't remember. Like five, six years ago. Yeah. We're going to go cannabis. So we made an intent, and we were listed in Canada because Canada was very open, the largest investor in Cuba at the time. And we dual listed in Canada, and we said, corporate intention is we're out of Cuba, and we're going to go into the medical cannabis business, and the stock took off. And then things progressed to the point that we were doing like 20 to $30 million a day in turnover and our share price just kept going up. And I think we got to about a dollar ten on 20 to 30 to 40 million in turnover. Um, and at that point, Pershing and some of the other trading platforms here had started to loosen up people's accounts. And there were people who couldn't get out that were screaming at me at 2 and 3P that were making like 50, 60, 70 cents on easy sell volume overnight going, wow, because I couldn't sell these, I literally made millions. I got some, I got mates in Australia. One guy made 10, one guy made eight, two of them made $9 million because they couldn't sell their stock and then they woke up one morning and then they could. And I'm sitting there going, Jesus, the stock's over a dollar. I wish I could sell. How much? How much did you have in the business? Well, what, least, was, what was your? Actually, I, I would have made over a hundred million. Um, our management in Canada—they were happily selling, trading. Because in Canada and America, if founders and executives trade well and sell their shares, they're heroes. They're entrepreneurs. In England, the moment management starts selling. And this is what I've been instilled with, not only here but Australia. If management starts selling, there must be something wrong with business. Whether it's this week, next week, next month, or next year, something's going to go wrong, right? So my moral background says I can't sell, even though you know my co-chairman is selling, and for whatever corporate reason, I mean the guy who had Canopy, I mean he sold his stock for four hundred million. Bruce, great guy. Canopy was a huge company. And I remember I, I shook Bruce's hand in Jamaica and said, mate, well done. He was gone with the birds. Thank you very much. He was a hero. Canopy's now, you know, we're almost worth nothing. But, but that's the difference. In North America, people trade the dream. People buy the dream. Here, people value the reality. And the reality is most businesses suffer. Look at look at Apple, never made any money for years. Look at Tesla. All those were big dream companies. Amazon, the whole lot. All loss making. Do you think those businesses would have ever had the valuations in the UK or Europe which enabled them to raise the money to build the platforms to now make them the biggest companies? And that's the difference. And that's why the UK 
will never, ever, ever rival the likes of Asia, the dream of the entrepreneur and North America. And Canada, I think you can sort of almost call American in that sense, is because here everybody's knocking the winners and it can't be worth that because look at this guy. And value comparisons, it doesn't work. Here, they don't value the dream. It kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier around uh, London as a as a market 10, 20 years ago. What do you think London has ahead, both from a... From well, a- London was a great market, you know. AIM, it was the dream. It was a growth company. It was the DLSE and all those sorts of things. And, yeah, and as I keep saying on some of the conferences I used to talk to when I was doing mining stuff, you know, how much nickel does England mine? No. Yeah. How much copper? No. How much zinc? No. How much coal? Used to do a bit. Who controls the world's commodities? Who owns the LME? The London Metals Exchange. The English. Where are the world's biggest coal mining companies listed? Here. So England had that huge corporate power of controlling the world's resources. And they don't even produce any here. So it was the dream. It, you know, in the old Australian gold mining days, where were most of the companies listed? England. And they created some of the great gold rushes of the world. The world here has become so woke and so anti-dream that it's almost trying to eat itself. Is that, is that a cultural thing? Is it a regulation thing? Is it a political thing? Is it a combination of all of them? I think it's, all, I think it's a combination of all. I, I think regulation has changed so dramatically. It's, it's almost changed as quickly as the concept of where on earth the transgender come. You know, three, four years ago, no one heard of transgender. The regulatory environment here is changing so much. Would you, would you... Brokers don't want to be in business anymore. All I hear from a number of big brokers is I wish I wasn't in the game because regulation is stopping me doing business. But yeah, there needs to be regulation. Absolutely, there needs to be regulation. But yeah, look at Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk says that, that, and I love Elon, I think he's one of the smartest weirdos the world's ever created. Yeah, the Saudis are going to take me over for $420 a share. So all you shorts who are trying to screw Tesla, you're all going to be out the door. The SEC does an investigation, says it was a bit naughty and you probably weren't right, and I'm going to sue you, Mr. Musk, for $20 million and Tesla for $20 million because maybe you told a lie and you shouldn't have put that on social media and you manipulated the share price. And now, and all he did was pay a fine and you're forgiven. And now he's worth even more than that, and Tesla's worth even more than that. So there's a whole different way of handling the regulatory side of things. Now, whether it was right or wrong, or what the SEC did with Tesla, but it just goes to show you, if governments want to be at the leading edge of buying a dream, and particularly if England's saying, I want to be an AI on me, specialist, where's the incentives? You can have all the rhetoric you like, but where, in reality, where is it going to be led from? Where the money is for the dream, right? So Google wants to be an AI specialist. It's got more money than God. Apple wants to be. Microsoft, they all... Do you think Britain 
who can't even afford to pay for the NHS and all the other stuff that's going on, and it's two trillion pounds worth of debt. Not that America gives a damn. You know, they've got thirty trillion dollars worth of debt and it keeps going up. Or well, what is the value of money? And I think the value of money is a promissory note that will never get delivered on, which is why I'm into crypto through Binance, which is why uh, Jeremy and I think we're going to make a lot of money out of Binance in time. But, you know, what is the dream? And I think all the parties here are guilty and to blame. Do you, do you think we're, we're as a country, a bit of a basket case now? Or do you think sense prevails and we and we do claw our way back? No, I think, I think the... I think... The rabbit's been let out of the hutch, and I don't think you can bring it back out. Really? Wow. When, when did you move to Monaco? I became a Monaco resident in 2008. And that was for tax reasons or quality of life or, or what? Lots of reasons. Um, I'm not English. I can live wherever I like. Um, before that, I was a resident of nowhere for many years. I didn't stay anywhere longer than 30 days. Um. But yeah, it's why do people move to Monaco? Some people move for tax, some people move for quality of life, some people move for the weather, some people move because the system of government is defined. And I like the fact that there is only one rule in Monaco, and that's the government's rule. If you don't like it, leave. Here you wake up in the morning and the rules keep flip-flopping and changing. So how on earth can you build a business if you don't know what the rules are next week? It, but word for word, that's almost the same as what our previous guest said. It, it was a, a guest in the oil and gas space, but you know he was saying that the energy profit levy has changed three times over the last 12 months. Well, no, I like how? oil and gas here. I, my favourite stalking horse hobby is talking about the Gatwick gusher and the fact that, that there is 100 billion barrels determined by two groups, Schlumberger and Utec, underneath the wheel basin. How much of it can actually be moved with conventional or unconventional means is still to be determined and the British government need to allow, if they want to assess the ultimate potential of that, they need to allow companies to explore and exploit certain varieties of how you can move those hydrocarbons from the 100 billion barrels that's been defined by those two global groups to see how much of that oil is movable and saleable, right? So... Oil and gas, and the rules keep changing. You, know, you can frack up north. They no, can't frack north. No. We're going to allow fracking, you know, says Theresa May. Oh, we're not going to allow fracking. The United States of America is now one of the largest producers of oil and gas in the world. In the 70s, they were stuffed. They were relying on the Middle East. Who's filled the gap for the gas supply into Europe because of the Ukraine war? The United States. They're fracking underneath towns, cities, and airports and all this talk about, oh, look at all, I've turned my tap on and I can light the, the, the water that's coming. You don't see that anymore. There was all hysteria. The concept of fracking is, do you know they frack pretty much every well offshore UK, but you don't see it. There are two fracking ships that go around the North Sea full-time just fracking existing wells. Popular politics. Correct. Not in my backyard. And yet, at the same t at the same time, we are, we're importing huge amounts of gas from everywhere else, and 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 we're talking about domestic energy security. I oh, know you've got no domestic energy security. This this city or this town, this country has at best 
a few days worth of gas storage. That's it. So if, if you end up with 10 metre swells all around the UK and the ships can't come in, everything shuts down. There's a little bit of gas storage or gas supply coming from Europe but because it's not part of Brexit. Now, I, I agree with Brexit. Maybe my views are changing a bit because I think execution is. This country needs energy storage, whether it's hydrogen storage or gas storage. Look at Germany. Germany has filled up all of its salt caverns. It's now back to 95% storage full. Okay, they paid for it, and it all came, a lot of the fill up came from elsewhere within the EU and the United States. This country has so much potential for oil and gas in tight structures that there are some places, surely within the UK, that the NIMBYs will say, okay, let's at least have a look at this so we can maybe, as a country, put it on the inventory to work out what we're going to do if there is World War Three or World War Four, Because the world needed England in the last two world wars. And I don't think you can rely on England when the next one comes. David, do you like, do you like the, the kind of the media frenzy that you get with things like Horse Hill, you know, sitting there with the Stetson on? Do you, do you like everything that comes with it or not? Sometimes. Yeah. When you know the story's right. Um, but you've got to know the story's right. And it was interesting, that whole Horse Hill thing. I mean, I remember it, um, Bicky, David Bick goes, because he was my sort of main PR guy and UCOGS guy. He goes, right, he says, we've got the, we had the BBC out there the day before, the energy correspondent for the BBC. They've done some pre-recording and some interviews with Steve. And I want you down at BBC House on Regent Street. Um, you won for seven o'clock. We'll have a cup of coffee because I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. So I remember sitting at the BBC at the coffee shop outside. You know, you look at that shot where, you know, the corridor before you get to the doors at the end. I'm sitting there with Bick at seven o'clock and we knew that we were going to have a piece on very early on the seven o'clock uh, morning program. And at five past seven, the phone rings to Bicky and says, get your man up here now. So I go, right, okay. I'm on the hot spot. So then they wanted me you know, in front of the camera. And there were three messages I was given that I needed to put across during the course of that day and the following day. One is, these were our numbers. These were independent global people's numbers. That was Horse Hill's oil in place. And this is the Wheel Basin's oil in place. And what the media never really picked up is that Newtech, who did that original number, had access because they were also consulting to the UK government. I think we actually referred to that in one of the original news releases, to every drill hole in the UK. So they analysed every drill hole that had ever been drilled in the wheel basin and reprocessed it with all of the knowledge that they had been using in the Eagleford and all those big formations in the United States that was making America great with respect to becoming its own oil producer of note. So the key thing was these aren't our numbers, these are independent numbers. The second thing was it's up to the government what they want to do with it. It's not my oil, it's the government and the people of England's oil. So the government, what do you want done with the concept of this oil in place and is it in fact movable? Because at that stage we hadn't even flow tested the well. All we'd done was identified 
from the logs how much oil was in place within the Portland and the Kimbridge. And the third one was, I think, battling with bureaucracy to go and now go and do the flow testing to prove that Horse Hill could actually have oil that flowed. And there are a few people in the press that really didn't like it. Um, the fact that an Aussie had discovered oil at Gapag Airport and English companies had been drilling there in the past and hadn't found any. There were two holes drilled in Horse Hill. Both of them hit oil. They never told anybody. Because when that crazy Tidswell came and saw me and says, I want to go and drill an oil well at Gatwick Airport, I said, how do you know we're going to hit oil? He says, because have a look at this log. They hit oil here right between the casing point, but they never analysed it. So he said, you're going to hit oil. But he said, the problem is you've got to drill a hole to the tertiary so we could prove if the Po Valley in France moved across into the UK. So that was the condition precedent. We had to drill a hole to the Triassic, and the Triassic was dead as a dodo. The sandstone was there, but there was no hydrocarbons. But what we did in, in drilling that is we actually found that the Portland was, was very oil-rich, and the Kimbridge, which is the source of the major oil and gas, which is the source and the reservoir, was had flowable oil. I still remember... I think it was Alistair Osborne in the Times quoting the ex-head of oil and gas at Imperial College and says, they'll be lucky to get half a cup full of oil out of the Kimbridge, how wrong he was. What, what was the frenzy like that morning? It was crazy. I mean, we had I had uh, ITV, we had Al Jazeera. I think I did um, five or six BBCs, regional, national, BBC World Service. I had people calling me out from Nigeria, from Hong Kong, saying, I've just seen you on television. It was crazy. Um, and I think the regulator at AIM really took offence that we got so much media over it. And to the point that I think that's really why I just said, you know what, I just don't like AIM anymore. And I've been quite pointed at my discussions on AIM and AIM regulations and the way they run things. And the clarification news release that she made us put out which really annoyed me, said exactly the same thing, but the paragraphs were reorganised. But she made us put in, through the Nomad, clarification on the heading. And that's when the media go, ah, oh, there's a problem, because it's a clarification. But if you read that news release, it's basically every word is just reorganised. But she insisted that we put clarification in. And, and from that day on, I've never forgiven it. Unfortunately, she still won't leave AIM regulations. She's still there. And I'll just play other markets. I mean, I'm on the board of an LSE company. I mean, I'm on the board of Aquas companies. I'm on the board of ASX. I'm soon to go on the board of TSX companies. Um, and, you know, when you look at AIM in its real heydays, I mean, it got up to 18, 1900 companies. And it's now sort of down to sort of seven, 800 companies. And, and a lot of them don't like being there. It, it kind of goes back to my question, Dave, that I asked earlier is that I wonder how much of it is a character thing. Is like, do you enjoy poking the bear at a no. little bit? Or no, I don't. No, those things I don't enjoy poking the bear. I enjoy building companies and rescuing companies. And you, to rescue companies, you need to be able to raise money, come up with concepts and move things along. But if you're always trying with one hand tied, it's really difficult. Um, 
there are better places to go put your money. I mean, if I look at my trading portfolio now, I reckon 80% of my trading would now be US and Australia, not UK. Whereas five, 10 years ago, it would be 90% UK. And I think there's a lot of that. I mean, uh, some of my best fund manager mates from New York stroke Miami, um, who I talk regularly to, say, we don't want to play AIM. I would rather play NEO in Canada and the ASX than play AIM. I go, why? I said, Dave, can you go do some NEO companies? We'll back you there. It's, it's lost a lot of street cred with the institutions. I think still today only 3% of fund managers around the world can trade AIM. 100% can trade ASX, 100% can trade the LSE, uh, 100% can trade you know, the TSX, and probably 70% can trade the TSXV. But AIM is still stuck in that little rut. It's a fantastic idea for a growth market. And then they sort of... It's not just them, it's the LSE and Aquas also tried to sort of upscale things to say, well, we're more respectable. You know, the LSE said, well, you can only list now um, small companies if you've got a 50 million pound ticket. Then AIM said, well, you can only do X, Y, and Z if you go from sort of a six to eight million pound ticket. And Aquas go, well, you can only do this if you go three to five million pound ticket. And I think that just took a lot of puff out of the, out of the market. Um, someone was telling me, from a very big broker on the junior end, I think top, one of the top brokers on the junior end, 2021, and forgive me if the numbers are wrong, but I think in concept it, it's right. The 2021 AIM did 1.3 billion pounds worth of capital raisings and IPOs. The next year, 2022, and they, this firm did like a big chunk of it. 2022, which was last year, it was 60 million. So 1.3 billion to 60 million. And this year, looking tragic. Why? I, I suppose, a bit, I mean, a big part of that is, is, is where we are in the cycle, right? I th- Australia's being nuts. Australia's had some of the best years they've ever had in resources, tech, IT, banking, you name it. Um, the NASDAQ, the Dow, you know, how many trillion dollar companies are there in North America now? What's happened here? This place is stalled, whether it's government regulation, whether it's um, investor sentiment. I think interest rates here are really hurting people. I mean, I think, you know, we've all got mortgages. What are we going to spend money on this week? Yeah? Um, I used to own, at one stage, 200-foot yachts. I own none. I was speaking to my 14-year-old daughter who goes, Dad, I miss, I miss Midnight Sun. I go, well, so do I, sweetheart. But I said, I think the next time we're going to be renting, not buying. Um, yeah, you think twice when, when mortgage rates really hurt. I mean, my mortgages are up 400% per quarter. Yeah, the, the time of living off cheap money is over. And I think there's a lot of shock to come here. I remember my, my old man was paying 17% mortgage rates in the 70s in Australia. And I think you're going to see a big surprise. The government's all going, no, no, it's all going to top out. Interest rates are coming down. You're playing with the banks. 
and the banks aren't allowed to lose money because they're holding your money. So, and the banks are also being beaten up by the government. Yeah. I was talking to someone the other day and said, sell your house because you're going to get 5% at Barclays wealth one month term deposit. You'll make more money from income from selling your house and putting it at 5% than you will by paying the banks the mortgage money, which has now gone up four times, which will probably go up six or seven times from where you were a year and a half ago. And that's a huge turnaround on a family fortune. I think there's a lot of people sitting there. And yeah, the government's talking about rolling over you know, 100 to 200,000 families a quarter into the new high regime. I don't even think we've seen this topped out yet. There was talk about, oh, it's going to flatten out about now. It ain't flattening out. America was going, okay, American inflation has gone from 4% to 3% or whatever it was the other day. It went down by a percent. That's great. But growth is still there. And we're now driven by wages growth. And it's wages growth from people who don't generate their own money. It's government wages. And 50% of Britain's bill is government and you're going to end up with something that's just unstoppable yeah. for a while. And I think you're going to potentially see interest rates 2 to 3% where they are here. And that's going to hurt people even more. And then you're talking government, change of government, elections. You know, I'm generally a conservative. Um, always been a conservative, I think. But I can understand that people in the UK, and my wife's English, go, it's time for a change. And then you go, okay, if the other might. You know, I still remember when, when, when Brown said to, to the Conservatives, when he handed across, he says, well, good luck. There's no money left in the Treasury. It's very interesting how no one seems to bring up that comment. And all I hear about from the Labor Party is, you know, been about the Tories for 13 years of bad management. Brown drove this country into zero money in the bank. The problems haven't even started yet. And everyone, all this special relationship with the United States. The United States, the world doesn't care if it has $30 trillion in debt. Everyone seems to care a lot that Britain's got £2 trillion pounds in debt because what does it actually produce? Yeah, I was, I was in France last week, yeah? And I said to the wife, I said, Geez, these French, they really know how to make stuff. These high-speed trains. That, okay, France is very socialist in, in so many ways. But they make a lot of stuff. What does England make? They've sold off the steel business. Um, Range Rover, Land Rover is now owned by Indians. What does England actually make? And I, and I think back and I go... Australia used to have two-stroke three-car manufacturers for a country of 25 million people. Do you know how many car manufacturers in Australia now? Zero. A few years ago, so we don't need a car industry. And I think you're going to find Britain in five to ten years. I don't need a car industry. It's like I don't need oil and gas because I can just run it from Norway. Brexit changed all that. England has to build itself up in so many ways and infrastructure and long-term asset gives employment and you need to start putting some proper stuff on the balance sheet 
it's it's a, it's in a difficult place. Well, I, don't, I'm, I think Monaco is the only country in the world that doesn't owe money to the World Bank and the IFC. They do a pretty good job. Yeah, I want to. I just want to want to jump jump back to y- your career quickly, Dave. And I, you know, you, you've been involved in mining, oil and gas, crypto, cannabis. Are you, are you actually interested in all these sectors, or are you more of an opportunist that, that kind of? Got I'm to- interested. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. Um, but but, but I mean, are you interested in making money, or are you interested in the actual businesses? No, no, all of these things, I try and do it to make money. And everyone, you know, going back to your comment, you know, half the city hates you, half the city likes you. You know, the con, you know, the word marmite's been used a lot. Um, it depends. As I speak to a lot of my broker friends, depends when you buy and sell. Of course, you know, companies are listed on the stock market to raise money. Otherwise, you may as well be private. I get involved in something that I'm passionate about. I don't want to get involved in something I don't care about. Yeah, right now I'm passionate in crypto, particularly Bitcoin and nothing else. Um, and yeah, we've listed a little thing called Binance, which has got a pissy little market cap of three to four million. We're going to hopefully get an OTC listing, QB, then watch what we do. And then I'm going to see who really likes the concept of Bitcoin mining? Is it the Americans or the English? And we're going to have a game going between the OTCQB and Acris. And we'll keep both because we're, we're listed here and regulated here. This will be trading there. And I, and I really want to do that from an experimental point of view as well. I mean, looking at Argo, okay, they've had some issues and, and some of the other things, but I see the whole concept of global debt as just a big promissory note that can't be fixed. And Bitcoin and the blockchain and USDC, digital currency, and all those things are really starting to get a lot of interest. And when you look at you know, what BlackRock did the other day, is they put an application in for the SEC to do a spot-traded ETF for Bitcoin. That shocked a lot. World's biggest managed funds going, want to do an ETF on Bitcoin. You can pay Bitcoin into PayPal now. MasterCard, you can do Bitcoin. And it's, it's almost like there's a little bit of rebellion, but you don't want full rebellion because the moment people don't care about a promissory note of GBP, euros or US dollars, you have anarchy and you have chaos, and the moment there is no trust in a government and its ability to cover its debts or pay its wages, you have anarchy and destruction. So you sort of half want Bitcoin to work. You want not the governments to get involved to screw with it, and you need governments to sort their own stuff out. And they'll never get rid of the corporate debt. It's almost like they've got to wake up one morning and just write it all off. Yeah, yeah. You can't do that because then the, all the other countries that can't pay their debt, and that's how we've got them screwed, uh, we'll, we'll wake up with a free, you know, free deck of hand you know, saying, oh, that's great. So, Just j- j- jumping back to the UK markets for a sec, what, what, do you think of, what do you think of retail as a driving force behind? We, we've always okay, seen- I think retail has changed a lot on the basis that so many people now trade not with money they own. I think... And, and this is where I've said, I've never traded a CFD account. I've never traded margin. I did have a CFD account once through WH Island. 
and I never did one trade. And I'm glad I didn't because we retail punters are optimists and the world is always in reality working against you, right? And here's a statistic. And I remember this fund manager going through this with me and he moved to Singapore and he wrote some very good books. And he says, even in a rising share price, your stock is still a 70% bear. It's just that when you get those little rises, they're big rises that counteract the natural bear. But if you just leave a stock unattended with news release and you're just a quarterly or six-monthly reporter, you will always end up with more natural selling than people buying. So therefore, the market is always a bear. So if you trade... CFD, you're an optimist, unless you're like Tom Winifred who, you know, and Evil Knievel who specialise in shorts, and the market needs shorts and longs, right? Because it generates rev- it generates volume, and volume I love because it creates the opportunity to raise money. You can't raise money with a stock that has no volume, right? So too many people trade on money they don't have. And when you trade CFDs, you're trading on leverage on a dream and the dream very rarely comes true because the market is always bigger than you and you have a timeline of weeks and the market has timelines of months to years and you will blow your brains out and I'm finding now I reckon if I had to put a number on it I reckon that 80% of the UK retail market is online and has margin and CFD accounts and that stops a proper run you can never really get a re-rate. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right? If you look at the ASX, where it's T plus one, and a company comes out and says, I've just hit 142 metres at 1.5% lithium in Western Australia, and its share price goes from 20 cents to 50 cents, it stays there. Because the market's going, well, that's one hole, there'll be more to come. Here... It will go from 20p intraday to 40. Smashed. And by tomorrow, it'll be 15p on three times the volume. And what's happened is the retail has traded it up. The market makers have slotted it, and that's their job. And you'll never get rid of the market makers in this market because market makers create liquidity and the LSE and all those trading platforms value themselves on the number of transactions per day, right? So you'll never get rid of that. The problem is you don't get that re-rate on a reset of, wow, that was amazing, and keep it there. The volume will eventually bring it back to the lowest common denominator, lowest common denominator, and then retail all gets burnt out and try and get them to come back again. But don't worry, we'll get them back again. What do you think of market makers? They've got a job to do. And they don't care about you. And that's not their job to care about you. A market maker at Shaw will will look after the letters P to W. And he just trades on computer algorithm. And there's one thing I learned from a market maker friend of mine many years ago, and he's gone. And I went and sat with him for about half an hour just to understand how market makers work. And he says, I don't care about you. I don't care about your company. I'm just here to make money. And if I lose money on your stock, I could lose my job. But he said, 
when a news release comes out, he said, there's only three things I read. I've got a little up and down arrow for sentiment, really, from the algorithm. He says, headline, first paragraph, CEO statement. I don't read anything else. And if that looks all right, I might give you a little up arrow tick so my bid and the offer move up. If it looks like there's a problem, just in those three things, I will down arrow it. And that sets the sentiment. He said, they're the only three things I read. And I've remembered that from that day forward, which is why when you read my news releases, the sentiment is in those first three things. And I try and get them all in the first half a page. Quite often, the nomads and the advisors and lawyers will try and shift the chairman's comments or whatever to page two or three to keep with a regulatory format. But no, no, it's, it's um, market makers have a place. Do I like the concept? I now understand it. You can't change it. Dave, you've obviously had like a, a hugely, uh, you have a hugely busy work life. Do you, do you do much outside of work or not? Work is my hobby to a large degree. Yeah. I mean, I do wake up in the morning and go, wow, I love my day. Because yeah. every day, it's a bit like, do I like the sectors that I'm going to? I'm learning about all of these things. I mean, I'm to me, they're widgets. And so long as I can get interest in the widget that I'm interested in and the volume, then I've got a game on. Because when you've got volume, you can raise money. And even bad management can buy good deals. But bad management can't buy good deals with no money. Do you, do you think that's your... Having taken me I through your career, do a deal that has no liquidity. Yeah, but but you you well, maybe one of your your greatest traits is the ability to raise money. You must have raised hundreds and hundreds of millions. About billions. What? Why? Why? Why are you well, so well? Good? Well over a billion pounds in the last fifteen years. Why? Why are you so good at it? Because I create liquidity. Yeah. Do you sell a dream? And I do sell a dream, and I believe in the dream. Like I still believe in Horse Hill, and the value of the Wheel Basin the UK. Like I still believe in low-cost airlines for Africa, even though COVID and everything else has changed it. And I brought Stelios in and we, we, we had a dream. We had a vision with Ed and all those guys. Um, I believe in Bitcoin. I believe in the future of Cuba. But sometimes the markets just work against you or regulation works against you. I believe in oil and gas as being part of the solution. I believe in hydrogen being one of the new future you know, saviors of the planet, which is why I think I'm the largest shareholder of, of HFI here. I was going to be chairman, um, but I'm not. I'm just the largest shareholder. I think I've got 11% or 12%. But I believe in it. And I think it's... And I never stop believing. I'm going I'm to ask you a hard question, Dave. Yeah. You came to London in 2003, 2004 with unbelievable success in those first few years. Mm. Do you think that the best is behind you? No, I reckon I've learned so much in the last three to four years. And the talent of people who run public companies here, because there's less of them, has shrunk. Um, yeah, one of your previous interviewees, you, know, you look at what he's achieved. Yeah. He's going to be around for a while. He's going to get bored. He's going to come back to it. The more experience you have with the markets and the regulators and understanding where the money wants to come to, 
the more you can find a deal that attracts the money. And if you can attract the money, you can attract the interest. I think, you know, I'm 62. I think I've got a good eight to 10 years of future thinking and thought, not only here, but, you know, the States and Australia and what I'm doing there. Um, look at Murdoch. He's 90-odd. He's still conquering the, the media world. Will I retire? No. Can't. Might just do it a different way. Well, when you say, when you say can't retire, is that as in, as in having got to the position that you, you think that that's a suitable level of wealth or what? No, no. There's no such thing. As, look, uh, in some religions, and I've got many friends who are Jewish, uh, and I love them to bits, uh, Jaime won't be happy unless he's got more money than Yoshi. And that'll be like that till the day they die. Um, but uh, when's, when's, when's enough, amount, enough? Okay, once you own your own house and your own car and you got enough to make sure the kids are okay and there's no point in giving kids millions of dollars because they're all going to just smoke it or put up their nose or something, um, that's enough. Um, yeah, I've done a little bit of philanthropy, but, but, but my whole concept on philanthropy is, you know, and, and I used to wake up and I used to come into Lonner office and say, we're doing great things in Africa. For every job that we create with foreign direct investment into Africa, we're saving eight to 10 people's lives. That is the, one of the biggest philanthropic things we'll do. Let's crack on and make Africa a big venture for us. At what point do you have enough money? I mean, yeah, I'd like a little bit more. Maybe another five to ten. I've had big boats. I've had a hundred foot. I've had a hundred and thirty foot. At one stage, I had two. Two. Yeah, I had a hundred and a hundred and thirty foot and sixteen crew and and four tenders. And the reason was because I couldn't sell the first one in a hurry. <laughs> Otherwise, I I would have been much happier with one boat and uh, and eight crew. Um, I think it. Your needs get different. As the kids get older, I've been to most places in the world I want to go. I've been so lucky. I've probably been to 100 countries. Do you have the same drivers or not? Yeah, no. I wake up every morning, 4 o'clock. Every morning, 4 o'clock. And at 5.30, I watch the BBC Business News. Now, I'm, a, I'm a creature of habit for stuff like that because it just sets my clock going. And it's that quiet time between 4 and 6. I catch up on yesterday... And some of my greatest ideas on where I want to go and where I'd like to take some of these companies that people ask me to help them with come in those quiet times. And then I go, do you know what? I'm going to go in and I'm going to have a cup of coffee, call a few guys and bounce it off. And, and when I do financings, it's usually the same. I get up at 4 o'clock. I watch the BBC business at 5.30. I'm sitting at Franco's in German Street at 7.30. By 8 o'clock, someone walks past. I go, do you know what? You know how we're talking about doing a financing for company X? I can smell it's right today. Let me make one phone call. And if someone wants to play, it's game on. And then we know we're busy all day. So, yeah, you ask me, uh, when do I stop? I don't. There's so many companies that need rescuing or building. And... I can't fix them all, but I can have a pretty good shot at fixing the ones I've got. And I'm I'm proud of quite a few, and there's some that I just couldn't fix. 
Adio, and that's another reason why half the market likes you and half the market hates you. Because you, you get you get painted, you know, as a, as a villain by by a number of people. Do you, like, do you have quite thick skin? Are you are you fairly like resilient to it all? Or yeah. because it sounds it sounds to me like you know, there you've done a lot of you've done a lot of good things and you've done a lot of you know. Yeah, people never write about that. They always just like writing about stuff that gets headlines, and that's the bad stuff. Is is it just you know, any, you know, any you know, any newspapers full of? Happy stories to you. Is, is any of it justified? Do you think or not? Do you, do you sit back and, and uh, regret and think? No, I don't regret anything I've done. Um, would I have done something a bit different? No, no, I don't think so. If I look back at where people throw darts at me on the dartboard from the press and from brokers and regulators, I go go throw darts at someone else. You know, you're throwing stuff at me because you're going to get some coverage and people are going to buy your price. It's be like Tom. I love Tom to bits. He used to be great, mate. He's going to his pizzeria. Tom writes about me categorically so he gets Google hits. And in fact, I owe Tom a favour because for years my daughter who's 14 said, Dad, you've got to give up smoking. These kids today, they don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't do anything. I think when they get older to have babies, they're just going to rub elbows or something. But um, Tom wrote to me about 10 weeks ago. He said, Dave... I know you and I have had our times from time to time, but he says, last interview, you were coughing a lot. And as an ex-smoker, give up, because I do actually care about you. Fair play. And I, go, and I go, you know what? My daughter's been banging on. And it was probably that one email from Tom. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try. And I haven't touched a fag now. And I haven't taken them out of the house. I haven't emptied the... I haven't thrown the ashtrays out. There's probably eight packets of cigarettes around, you know, in my life that I just refuse to touch, and I haven't had a cigarette now for eight weeks, and I'm not even inclined to think about one. And for that, I owe Tom. Yeah, I don't think many people would expect that. Dave, I've got I've got my final question here, and, and yeah, it kind of goes back to something we were speaking about. Earlier. What are you most proud of in life? Oh Jesus! I think if I really look at it, I've got four kids. 33-year-old daughter, married, lawyer, just made partner. 25-year-old boy, got a double degree, just now works for the Australian government in Canberra. 24-year-old boy who chased his girlfriend over here and he's now working for Merchant Bank. Uh, he's got commerce degree and I got a 14-year-old princess who's pretty good at horse riding. They haven't gone to drugs work hard and they're good kids amazing that's it Dave thank you so much I really really appreciate that thank Pleasure. you so much Dave no worries